When I was, um, when I was about one years old, my, my mom, she struggles with uh, chronic headaches her whole life. And her headache at one point when I was about one years old got so bad that the, my, my dad decided to actually take her into the ER. And upon taking some different tests, they concluded that she'd actually contracted viral meningitis. And the headaches were increasing, and she went into a, a mild coma for a few days. And she was coming in and out, and she wasn't getting better, to the point where uh, people thought she was going to die. And she thought she was going to die. And she said to my dad, take, take care of Matthew. I mean, that she was saying her goodbyes. And so my grandparents at their church, uh, they held a prayer meeting one evening, and they prayed specifically that God would heal my mom. And my grandmother, the next morning, went to the hospital, and as she's going down the hall, she hears my mom talking to the nurse. And she gets in the room, and she says, Hi, Mom. I'm better. And they discharged her like 24 hours later. It seems that God healed her. Uh, my wife, Vanessa, has a story of uh, being on a missions trip down to Costa Rica, and they were down there uh, helping a church, and they were doing some evangelistic work. And a young girl came to this evangelistic meeting, and she, Vanessa tells a story that she had cataracts so thick on her eyes that they just looked cloudy white. And they prayed a prayer of healing over her, and Vanessa will tell you that she literally saw as they were praying the cataracts go away, and the girl starts crying and weeping and giving praise and glory to God. Back when we were first married, we lived in Monterey, California, a very formative time in our life. And one of the ladies there, her name was Rachel, she's still a friend of ours, and I emailed her this week to ask her about this story, and she says she has zero recollection of this happening, but I'm going to tell it anyway, because Vanessa and I remember it happening. And um, her father, who had been living with him, had uh, intense gout on his foot, and it was causing him such intense pain, and we just went and prayed for him, and he was healed. And it wasn't like the pain subsided for a couple hours or a couple days, it just, it was gone. Never came back. And then a couple weeks ago, uh, during service, Evie said that she had such difficulty with um, a headache that her, her vision was cloudy and she couldn't even see. And so she came up after service and she asked a few of us to pray for her. So we laid hands on her and prayed for her. And, and it, she emailed us and texted us later that it went away. That God had healed her. So I tell these more dramatic to less dramatic stories. And if it's not clear by now, we're going to be talking about healing today. And I know that this topic for some of you is one of great excitement. For others, it's some confusion. And and if we're honest, for others, there's caution and concern. (laughs) But our desire as a local church is to go where the Bible takes us. To go where the Bible takes us. Because we believe that the Bible is the final authority for faith and practice in the church. So if the Bible takes us there, then that's where we're going to go. And if the Bible doesn't take us there, then we're not going to go there. And we're in a series as a local church called Life in the Spirit. And what we're looking at is we're unpacking the promise of the Old Testament, the primitive 
prominent, excuse me, and pervading promise of the Old Testament is that the Holy Spirit would indwell his people. That's the, that's the main mark of the new covenant versus the old covenant. In the old covenant, the Holy Spirit came upon people at different seasons or times, prophet, priests, kings, builders, and so on, to accomplish a certain task. But the promise of the new covenant is that the Holy Spirit would come upon every single believer. Every single believer has the Holy Spirit living and dwelling inside them. The promise of the Old Testament, Isaiah 44.3, I will pour I will pour water on the thirsty land and the streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. This is the promise. This is what Peter quotes at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He quotes Joel chapter 2. And these places where it says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. I will pour out my spirit on the last days, in the final days, upon your descendants, upon my people. And that's exactly what Peter quotes at Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit falls on everybody. So we're looking, as a local church, what it means to, 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 to live and to walk in the Spirit. And one of the ways that we're doing that is we're, we're, we're unpacking 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. And one of the things that we're acknowledging, and we've said, is that there are churches that seem to either esteem the Word of God, or they seem to esteem the Spirit. But our vision as a local church is the convergence of word and spirit, the convergence of spirit and truth, the convergence, as Andrew Wilson calls it, of spirit and sacrament, the convergence of word and power. So if you have your Bible, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read to us verses 4 through 11. But we'll be focusing specifically on verse 9. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. And to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the, same, by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Would you pray with me? Father, we do come to you now as those that long to see you in your word. We pray, God, that you would give us an understanding into this thing called healing, Lord. Something that nearly every single one of us longs to see either in our life or a loved one's life. Help us to understand it, God, through your word. And help me as I try to teach it and unpack it carefully. And Lord, we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, I have to make this point every week. Because every week... Somebody comes up to me and says, I don't feel like I'm gifted. 
I want to remind you again of verses 4, 5, and 6. It says that there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And there's three words, three different words in the Greek. Charisma, diakonia, and energia. Okay? So charisma is that gift of grace. It's that kind of supernatural thing that's mentioned here. Diakonia is a gift of service. Right? It's a way of serving somebody. And energia is, it says, um, varieties of activities here. Could be better translated ministries. Ministries. So there's, there's gifts of grace, there's services, there's ministries, and all are the manifestation of the Spirit. All are the manifestation of the Spirit. The folks that showed up this morning and made the coffee was a manifestation of the Spirit. The people serving in the children's ministry right now is a manifestation of the Spirit. Okay? Karen setting up the lunch for us downstairs is a manifestation of the Spirit. We ought not elevate one above the other, and that's always the danger when we start preaching and talking about the gifts, is that something gets elevated and seen as more spiritual than something else. And Paul is just adamant that that is just not true. He almost cares more about that than even talking about the gifts. So we have to continue to remember that. All are manifestations of the Spirit. Now this sermon today, I must tell you that the nature of this series almost requires me to preach topically. And by that I just I mean that it requires us to look at other places in the scriptures to sort of elucidate and give contours to what Paul is talking about here. Okay, so I just want to say that at the front, this is more of a topical sermon, which isn't necessarily bad. It's just not the normal way that we go through the Bible, because it seems most helpful to look to the narrative portions of Scripture where these gifts are operative in a way that helps to explain them. And so for a bit of our time here this morning, we're actually going to look at John 11. We're going to look at John chapter 11, so you can turn there. This is the story of Jesus, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. We're going to give some... um, We're going to look at some principles there, and then we'll give some application for our congregation this morning. As you're turning to John 11, it, um, it struck me this week that we usually phrase the question about healing like this, why didn't God heal or why doesn't God heal more? But the more I thought about it, the question really should be turned on its head and asked, why does God even heal at all? It's like when we ask the question, why doesn't God save everyone? Instead of asking the question, why does God save anyone? Why is he merciful enough to actually save anyone? Why would he be merciful enough to actually heal anybody? As you continue to turn to John chapter 11, if it takes you that long, that's okay. If you're going slow, that's fine too. There's another point by way of introduction that I want to make here. Looking at verse 9, in, um, still in 1 Corinthians, sorry, I probably had to turn to John 11 too fast. Verse 9 says, the gifts of healing by one spirit, by the way, the gifts of healing is mentioned three times in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 28 says, the gifts of healing, and verse 30 says, the gifts of healing. Every time, this is important, every time 
this gift is mentioned, it's in the plural. It's in the plural. So it's maybe better translated, instead of gifts of healing, it should be gifts of healings. Gifts of healings. So what's the point? Listen to Gordon Fee, who is the, 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 the preeminent, I think, charismatic scholar. He says, gifts of healing, what this refers to needs little comment. We know what, we know what healing means, okay? He says, but what is of interest is the language gifts of healings, which occur all three times that is referenced in the plural. This suggests that it is not a permanent gift, but that each occurrence is a gift in its own right. Don Carson, another commentator, making the same point, says, one of the things that our generation needs is to, is to avoid the institutionalizing of the gifts. If a Christian has been granted the charisma to heal one particular person of one particular disease at one particular time, we should not presume that this person now has the gift of healing. And we should not then prompt them to go start a healing ministry. Okay? See, the point that he's making is that God will apportion and give gifts as he wills, as the need presents itself within a congregation. And just because one time you prayed for somebody and somebody got healed, doesn't mean that's always going to happen. And vice versa, just because you've been praying for people for years and they haven't got healed, doesn't mean stop. Pray for God to move. Pray for God to heal. So John chapter 11. I like that phrase from Carson. We shouldn't institutionalize the gifts. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard of it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of Man might be glorified through it. Let's stop right there for a second. Let's ask the first question, okay? Ask the first question, why does God heal? Why does God heal? And the very first thing that we need to know and we need to remember is what Jesus tells us right here in verse 4. It is for the glory of God. God heals for his glory, that people might turn to him and see him and see his magnificence, see his worth, see his value, and see his glory. Okay, God heals people so that people are more enamored with who he is. God heals people so that they will look to him and say, you are glorious, I am not. You are worthy of all praise, I am not. That is the first and primary reason why God heals. Second, verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It's very simple. God heals people because he loves them. He heals people because he loves them. He loves people. He loves his people. And verse, the first word there in verse 6 is a very interesting word. So... When he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Because he loves Lazarus, and because he wants God to receive glory, he waits two days for Lazarus to die. And he'll say, 
later in verse 14 and 15, so that you may believe. So God heals so that he will build faith in people, that he'll build within them the desire to trust him, to see him, to long to wait on him, to see that he knows the beginning from the end, that his timing is not our timing, that his ways are not our ways. He heals because he wants his father to be glorified. He heals because he loves people, and he heals because he wants to build faith in you. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to see him as all-glorious, and he wants you to know that he loves you. That's why. But if we want to see more healing, we must ask ourselves these questions. If we want to see more healing, are our desires in align with God's word here? Do we want to see healing because we want to see God glorified? We want to see God high and lifted up? Do we want to see healing because we want people to understand that God loves them? And do we want to see healing because we want to see faith rise in the congregation? We want to see faith built up in this place. Second, what else do we learn in this text? When does God heal? When does God heal? We're going to skip down a little bit. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. A little dense. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant that he was taking a rest in sleep. So Jesus looked at them and told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Okay? It's not nap time. It's not like he's going to wake up. He doesn't need like just cat nap. He's dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But now... But even now I ask that, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Do you hear what she said there? We're asking the question, when does God heal? And she has an insight that is absolutely crucial for us to understand. Okay? That God will raise Lazarus in the resurrection. That Every single prayer for healing will be answered. So this is a different kind of prayer than any other kind of prayer. This is not, Lord, help me get the job next week. God may or may not answer that prayer. But God, heal my brother, heal my sister. He will answer that prayer. The question isn't if he's going to. The question is when is he going to. The question isn't if. It's a matter of when. And this is absolutely fundamental to all Christian doctrine. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That is the declaration of the Apostles' Creed. That's what Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is right after this passage, by the way. We're preaching through the gifts, right? 12, 13, 14. And immediately Paul reminds them what is of first importance. Now that I'm done talking about the gifts, what's of first importance is that Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected. 
Verse 16, he says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still dead in your sins. God will heal. That's why we read Revelation chapter 21 this morning, that there is coming a time in the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more sickness, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. So what we're asking God to do when we ask him to heal is we're asking him to give us a glimpse of heaven. Give us a glimpse of the way things should be. Give us a glimpse of the way that things ought to be. That's the way that N.T. Wright describes it in his book, Surprised by Joy. That a miracle, God healing, is us getting a foretaste of him setting the world right. Setting the world the way it should be. She knows it will happen. She knows it will happen. She just is asking for it to happen sooner. So that's why... That's when, it's a different kind of prayer, God will heal you. Just asking him to do it sooner. And through whom, who, through whom does God heal? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went with him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, "How see how he loved him. And some of them said, could he not, who have opened the eyes of the blind, kept this man from dying? We see it's, it's through Jesus that, that God heals and you know this passage, it's a familiar passage, but when we're talking about healing and we're asking questions of timing, questions that we don't oftentimes get answers to, we don't know why God heals sometimes and God doesn't. But we do know this. We do know the character of this man who is our Savior. Look at this man. He is the resurrection and the life. He is life itself. He's, a great, he's the great teacher. He's instructing them and reminding them and bringing them along. He's the God who's near. He comes near to his people in their time of sorrow, in their time of illness, in their time of sickness. He's near to you in your affliction. The Jews marveled. They said, see how he loved them. He's the God who loves you. And he's even the God who weeps. He's the God who weeps. He looks at illness. He looks at sickness. He looks at death. And he's moved 
in his inner spirit, in his inner being. In fact, it says that he was deeply moved in his spirit. It's a very strong and violent even word in the Greek text. It means that he's enraged within his spirit. It's the word that's corollary to the sound of a war horse snorting. He's violently angry at death. He despises death. Death is not the way that it should have been. He looks back maybe and sees the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of that tree, you eat it, you will surely die. And he's angry about it. But he's the one that can do something about it. Because he's the resurrection of the life. He's the one through whom God heals. And how, how, verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there's going to be an odor. He's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, then you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on the count of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen shrouds and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus heals with words. Now, we can't stand in front of tombs and declare like the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power for dead people to rise. But we can pray and ask Jesus to do it. We can pray and use words and ask Jesus to do it. He's the one who can stand in front of a tomb where someone's been dead for four days, and he can speak, and he can set things the way that they should be. He can make a dead man rise and a dead man walk and come on out. And he's the one who is our Lord and Master and Teacher. He's the one who's our Savior, and he's the one that we pray to in Jesus' name. And we ask him to move on our behalf. We ask Jesus to do the things that only Jesus can do. So let me apply this to us, what this is going to look like. Let me just going to get into a few things here. I told you it's a very topical sermon. I want to ask us a few reasons why, and give us a few reasons rather, why God doesn't heal. Okay? Because there are things that the Bible gives us that tells us reasons why God would not hear our prayer or request for healing. Number one, unrepented sin. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. James 15, excuse me, 515. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Do you see the connection that James is making between unconfessed sin and healing? Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. 
Could that be a double entendre? Maybe. Maybe he's talking about healing of, 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 of forgiveness of sin and physical healing. But I think in, 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 in context, he's at least talking about physical healing. The prayer of faith is hindered by unconfessed sin. That's one reason why God might not be hearing our prayer or hearing your prayer. Two, taking communion in an unworthy manner. Taking communion in an unworthy manner. It says, whoever, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let each person examine himself then, so that so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks and eats without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. And some have fallen asleep. You see that scary connection, the warning that Paul gives there. That some of you are ill and weak, he says, because of taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And his charge then is to discern the body. And there he means the body, you all, we are the body, and I think he means yourself. So to discern, are there divisions happening in the church? Are, are we, are, are there, is there patterns of unforgiveness? Is there preferential treatment on a socioeconomic or, or, or gender basis or something like that? Then deal with that first. And he says, look at yourself. Look at yourself. Because you're eating judgment on yourself. Third reason. Peter tells husbands that if they don't honor their wives, their prayers will be hindered. Family discord, family strife could be a reason that God may not hear your prayers. He says in 1 Peter 3, 7, showing honor to the woman as a weaker, weaker vessel since they are heirs with the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Prayers can be hindered because you husbands treat your wives like a big jerk. Number four, doubt. Now, I struggle to bring this one up because this one is so abused by people that I hate to even mention it, but it's in the Bible. It's so abused by people and said, you weren't healed because you didn't believe enough. You weren't healed because you didn't have enough faith. And that has caused many, many people to be thrown into confusion concerning the things of God. With that said, James, we just read it, James 5.15, the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. How many times does Jesus say, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He says to the Samaritan leper in Luke 17, rise and go away. Your faith has made you well. When we talk about faith, we remember the man in Mark chapter 9 whose son had, uh, had those convulsions, right? And he said, do you believe? And the man says, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief, okay? Because it's not the quantity of your faith that saves you or invokes Jesus, right? It's the object of your faith. 
And the object of your faith is Jesus. The object of your faith is Jesus, the one who will heal, the one who will save you, the one who will keep you. It's not the quantity of that faith. It's not how much is there. Because it was enough. A mustard seed was enough. An ounce was enough for Jesus to move on this man's behalf. So faith is involved. Okay, Believing God to do it. I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. The analogy that I've heard years ago from Tim Keller is this. If you're falling off a cliff and there's a branch there, and you reach up and grab the branch, it doesn't matter how much your trust is in the branch. What matters is how strong is that branch to hold you. Okay? I don't even think you're really thinking about uh, your grip strength at that point. I think you're thinking, is this branch going to hold me? And your faith is in the rock. Your faith is in the one whose name is the resurrection and the life. The master. But, you know, even with these different reasons that could potentially be hindering God, we know that sometimes God doesn't heal because he has a million reasons that we simply don't know about. God is always doing a million things in your life, and you might know about one or two of them. He's upholding the universe by the word of his power. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the beginning from the end. He's orchestrated all of human history. Okay? And there are the details of your life that you simply aren't going to understand. It's like when you're explaining to a child why they can't do something. You can't always just explain every reason for why you're doing something. Now, God is infinite, and we are finite. The, 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 the chasm and the gap between that analogy is infinite. God has infinite knowledge and he's doing an infinite number of things that we will never understand. But he's working all things together for good. He's bringing about the best of all possible circumstances for your life. And that is so hard to believe sometimes. When you're sitting there holding your child and just praying that God would heal. Why won't you heal, God? Look to him. Look to him who weeps. Look to him who is the man of sorrows. Look to him who snorts at the tomb, who's angry at death. Look to him who's promised that all will be raised to newness of life. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but we look to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Your suffering, your sorrow, your illness, your sickness is not a waste. It is not a waste. It is preparing for you. It is preparing for you a weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. God doesn't waste one of your tears. God doesn't waste one of your moments of sorrow or sickness or sadness or illness. Every single one of them is preparing something for you. It's doing something for you. That is the miracle of the God of the Bible. Not that he removes all evil at once, but that he can actually use evil to bring about good. 
that is a much, much more powerful and greater miracle. Not that he can just remove it, because he can and he will, but that he can use even the bad things, even the sicknesses, even the illnesses to bring about a greater good. And that's amazing. And we know, sometimes he just doesn't heal. I mean, it's throughout the New Testament. In fact, most of Paul himself even says that he has a, he's, been, he's been afflicted with this, with this thorn in the flesh. There's nothing to indicate that he sinned or something to get that. God just chose in his sovereignty to do it. In fact, most of Paul's companions at different points appear to us to be sick. Sounds like Timothy's sick down there in Ephesus. He says that he's got frequent ailments, and he actually tells him to drink a little wine for it. But Timothy's sick. It says in 2 Timothy 4 that Erastus remained in Corinth. I left Trophius, who was ill at Miletus. Doesn't say that guy needs to repent, so he's not sick anymore. Apparently, Paul ended up in Galatia because he was sick. Listen to Galatians 4.13. You know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. It was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. There's a greater good. Paul's illness seems to have made him move from one location to another. And as a result, there's a church there and there are Christians there who now praise and give glory to God. It's Paul's illness that brought him there. He's using, God uses even the weak things, even the ill things. So let me drive us to a practical conclusion like this. There's two dangers. We can either think that because God ever heals, God will always heal now. We can think that because God ever heals now, he will always heal now. And we've just demonstrated that's just not, that's not the case. But the other danger is that we can think because God doesn't always heal, he never will heal. Because God doesn't always heal, we're tempted to think that God will never heal. So what are we going to do? Well, every Sunday, after our services, as soon as the benediction's over, the elders are up front, ready to pray. That's what James tells you to do. He says, if any of you are sick, go to the elders, and they will anoint your head with oil, and they will pray for you. And we're here every Sunday to do that. And it doesn't have to be Sunday. If you're sick and you want us to come to you, call us. We'll come. Many years ago, I heard John Piper, who's a pastor in Minnesota, say that every Sunday morning he prays, God, would you give me the gift of healing? And I've tried to do that. I think as many Sundays as I can remember, I've tried to do that for the last 10 years. God, would you give me the gift of healing this morning? Would you just... Second thing is that we have prayer teams after Sunday service. We've asked folks to be at different parts of the room so that you can come up and ask for prayer for whatever you need. And we're going to pray, and we're going to use words, as we saw, but we're not going to, we don't need to pray magical incantations. And our other temptation is to pray theology over people instead of just asking God to do what they've asked them to do. God, would you heal this person we ask in Jesus' name? So let's close with this. Isaiah 53 
is one of the servant songs. And the New Testament authors will apply this passage in two different ways, because both are true. It says that he was despised and he was rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken by God and smitten and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Matthew will quote in Matthew chapter 8 this passage to talk about Jesus' healing ministry. Peter will use it to talk about how we're healed from the stains of sin and death. Because the greater miracle, hear this, friends, the greater miracle than you receiving physical healing today is that you've been cleansed and forgiven of your sins. Your sins are what kept you from God. Your sin is what kept you from communion and right relationship with him. Your sickness doesn't keep you from God. Your sin keeps you from God. And Jesus has made a way. He was the one who was wounded and afflicted on your behalf for your sake so that you can be healed of your sinful, wicked heart. So that you could be brought back to him and made his. And one day, he will heal you of all your physical ailments when he brings you into his kingdom in the presence of his Father and the glory of his angels. Then he will heal you. But the greater miracle, the greatest miracle, is that you can have a right standing with this Jesus today. Because he's made a way for you. He's the one who took the penalty that you deserve. We esteemed him not. But he was pierced for our transgression and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. You have peace with God because of Jesus Christ. And that is the greatest of all possible healings that could happen. Healed from the stain of sin and death. Healed from the wrath that is to come for those that don't repent of their sins and look to Jesus. Healed of the separated relationship that existed between you and a holy God. By his stripes you are healed and you have peace with God.